south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 313, covering the week of June 13th through June 17th, 2022. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all of those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us that email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. It's, again, our gift free of charge to you just for giving us that email address. And, of course, you get on our email list then. That's a great way for us to communicate with you. We let you know about our upcoming conferences. We give you the Daily Dose of Dixie, which is our articles Monday through Friday. Lots of great stuff through that email list. And, of course, we will have another Zoom webinar coming up at the end of the month, June 28th. It will feature Brandon Meeks, who is uh, one of our great storytellers. So if you want to come in and talk about storytelling, and he's going to, I'm sure, spin a few yarns, and uh, it'll be fun. Uh, this is going to be a little different. You know, Usually we have an, an, an academic topic to talk about. This is going to be all about storytelling, which is, of course, an important part of the Southern tradition. Literature is uh, a vital component of the Southern tradition, and so Brandon Meeks does this really well. And so, look, you'll get the information about that through the email list. So you want to be on the email list to get those. Of course, also we have our summer school coming up in a couple of weeks. It is sold out, uh, but you will be uh, seeing some information on that after the event in terms of some uh, videos and other things we're putting out for it. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We still have our Abbeville U videos that we're putting up. We had the one on Jefferson Davis. We have another one coming out in a couple of weeks on Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemming. So look for those. Those will be on the YouTube channel. If you're on the YouTube channel and you like the videos there, make sure you click on that super thanks button underneath so you can throw a few pennies our way to help us produce more of those videos. And that said, we do exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like the Institute, you like the podcast, the website, the videos, the conferences, all the things we do to try to make sure we're exploring what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, you want to click on that support tab at abbevilleinstitute.org, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. Or when you pull up the page, it'll say donate, support us. Click on that. That's how we exist, right? So if you're not sending a few bucks to us as much as you can, we understand times are tight. So if you can only send a few dollars, we'll take it. If you can send a lot more than that, we'll take it too. But everything we do costs money. So please consider a tax-deductible excuse me, donation to the Abbeville Institute um, it is a great way to let us know you like what we're doing. All right, well, let's talk about the week at the Institute. We had some really good stuff this week. Um, and again, all of these articles are available because people like you keep the website going. But we had a couple of really interesting articles, I think, that put a little different spin on the issue of slavery in the South. And the first was about white indentured servants. And this is something that's often forgotten about when it comes to the legacy of slavery in America. We've, we've run several articles about this before, but you know, white slaves, white indentured servants, slavery as being uh, a part of American history outside of Africa. And many of these people were kidnapped. You know, Irish slaves uh, were certainly kidnapped and brought over. And the horrible part about that, when you look at what was happening in Pennsylvania, for example, is ships would show up and you'd have families there on board those vessels, and they needed to get off the boat. Well, they couldn't until they could pay their way off the boat. And so they would 
wait, you would have slave traders essentially come to the docks in Philadelphia, and you might have a family there of a mom and a dad and a couple of kids. Well, the kids are going to be the most valuable because they give the longest term of indentures. So the parents would actually sell their kids off into slavery first. And many of these kids would either die or um, you know, never really get out of their indentures. I mean, this was hard. This is a hard life. And so that's an often forgotten part of this, uh, the issue of slavery in America. But nobody talks about it because there's nothing to do with race there. So this is where our infatuation or preoccupation with the issue of race clouds our understanding of American history and this much bigger topic of American slavery. Also, we have to understand that when the first Africans were brought to uh, the British North American colonies, they were not lifelong slaves. They were indentured servants as well. Now, we know that there are cases where you have um, early in Virginia history through, through a legal case within, within the 17th century where you have African slavery established as a lifelong institution. But again, that was... Um, <laughs> That in the the first case you know, people talk about was where a court decided that a you had a, several indentured servants. One who was African was forced into lifelong bondage. The others weren't. So people often point to that as the first instance of African lifelong African slavery in America. But then there's also the case where an African had enslaved another African in Africa, and when they arrived here, they took it to court. And the court decided that this was a lifelong bondage institution. So this is a complex situation. And we also know that New England was heavily invested in this. They were making the most money on the trade because they were involved in the shipping. So that was a big deal for the New England economy. You know, Providence, Rhode Island, Newport, Rhode Island. These were, these were important slave trading hubs. And uh, what's really interesting, you know, Nathaniel Russell, who was... Um, uh, the largest slave trader in Charleston, South Carolina, was actually from Rhode Island. If you go to his, his home there in Charleston, uh, you'll find that uh, they, they talk about this. I mean, he was he made his money on slave trading, but he's from Rhode Island. He had contacts in Rhode Island. This is how he was able to set up in Charleston and import slaves into Charleston from Rhode Island. So typically, the first stop for Africans in British North America was in New England. And then, of course, they would be shipped out. Eventually, you did have some stops there in, uh, in the South as well. But this is a complex institution. And this first piece by Tim Duskin talks about you know, these other slaves, these white slaves that were brought into the New World. And, of course, uh, part of that horrible process as well. So um, this is something that you know, needs to be discussed. And we need to have information about this. And it's one thing we like to do. It's you know, Northern Studies. We... You know, every school in the, in the South now has a Southern Studies program. In fact, just about every university in America has a Southern Studies program because the South is a peculiar other. And by peculiar, they think it means odd. But the way peculiar was used in the 19th century was actually unique, but not odd. You know, slavery wasn't odd in the 19th century when you look at the global economy. It wasn't odd at all. It was unique, though. The North American con condition for slavery was unique. It was a different condition than just about anywhere else in the world when it came to slavery in, uh, in a global perspective. So these comparative histories that need to be done would, I think, shed some interesting light on the institution of slavery in North America. But then we have this piece by uh, Jack Marcourt, one of our resident scholars in Japan, published on Tuesday, and it's about Liberia. This is the other forgotten part of slavery. 
You see, what happened was very interesting in Virginia and Upper South. Virginians were concerned about the institution of slavery, and they wanted to figure out a way to get rid of it. And so they came up with an idea to establish what, what became known as the American Colonization Society. And if you don't know much about it, the idea was to take freed slaves and to expatriate, the, expatriate them back in Africa. And so uh, this was very popular in some parts of the Upper South. And you had some pretty uh, famous supporters of it, including Henry Clay, James Monroe, uh, also Abraham Lincoln was a major proponent of colonization. In fact, he talked about it up until 1865, just a little bit before he was, he was killed. Lincoln was thinking about uh, some type of colonization program, if not in Africa, perhaps in South America. So he was interested in a way of getting a safety valve, so to speak. So you're going to free this large number of slaves. He did not believe, and of course... People in the Upper South did not believe that this would be a beneficial situation for either the former slaves or the former masters because you would always have a tension there between the two. So the idea was to say, okay, here's what we need to do. Take these former slaves, send them to Africa, send them to South America, get them out of the United States because it will solve a potential race conflict. And they had looked around the, they had looked around the Caribbean, they had looked around the world, and they had seen that, my gosh, you know, you've had a situation like um, Haiti, for example, where you had a terrible, uh, terrible race uh, situation there. And um, so what do we do with it? Well, we have to favor something like colonization. It would solve this potential uh, for racial conflict in the United States. And so Liberia became the goal. And of course, the United States would eventually negotiate to wrestle a certain amount of land from an African kingdom. They set up Liberia and they started sending slaves to Liberia or former slaves to Liberia. What's interesting about all of that is what happens in Liberia. As these former slaves arrived in Liberia, what do you think they did? Well, they started building homes that looked like southern plantation homes. They started dressing and acting like the antebellum south, and they started enslaving the local population. In fact, uh, this became so pronounced that by the 20th century, which slavery still existed in Liberia until the 1940s, <laughs> I mean, so we're talking about nearly 100 years, actually over 100 years after the export, uh, exporting of slaves, in, former slaves into Liberia. For 100 years, these former American slaves and their descendants enslaved the native population. And this got to be so bad that eventually there was a military coup, which took place in 1980. And it was a result of this stratification that had been developed in Liberia between uh, former American slaves and the Africans in Liberia. I mean, Liberia had some. It had a hospital that was, in many ways, second to none in Africa. The John F. Kennedy Hospital in Liberia. Now it's uh, it's horrible. Uh, they had a five star hotel in uh, in Monrovia, which was is, still is the capital of Liberia. This was a pretty uh, prosperous place on the west coast of Africa. When the military coup takes place in 1980, it's, it's done. I mean, Liberia now is a, a, a very economically depressed, to, to put it nicely, place. And um, this is the result of that civil war. The hotel that was so beautiful is now just a, a ruin. Uh, but people used to go and vacation in Liberia on the west coast there of Africa. And, and uh, it was uh, considered to be a, a fairly, uh, fairly advanced country 
in Africa. But after the Civil War, it's not. Now, Liberia, though, again, founded by former American slaves, and the society they established there was developed or developed in a way that would be similar to what you have had in the South. So that part of it, I mean, is often forgotten about Liberia. You know, the, the, the uh, belief that somehow if, if slaves, of course, had been given their freedom, everything would have been different. Well, we know even in the American South, not outside of Liberia, we know there were black slave owners in the American South. There's a lot of them in Louisiana, but you also had black slave owners in South Carolina. And this was not a benevolent institution. These people were enslaving people for profit and gain. In fact, the most notorious slave breeder in South Carolina was a black man, right? William Ellison was his name, and he was engaged in, in, a, in a financial enterprise to produce more people so that he could sell them. And this was, um, I mean, this was something that was seen to be as heinous and horrible, but here you have a black man doing this. And so this is an interesting part, again, of, of the story of the American South. And one thing you won't get in the cartoonish caricature of the South or anything else, like from the 1619 Project or any of that kind of stuff, but the 1619 Project does get some things right, by the way. It just, um, but it gets some things wrong too. And so we we have to understand that, right? So these first two pieces did such a fantastic job in giving you a different perspective on American slavery in the in the South and, of course, in the world, right? I mean, you have. This, these kidnapped Irish being brought over here. You have the former slaves colonized in Liberia. And of course, those former slaves in Liberia are going to enslave the native population there, which is a, I mean, that's a big deal, right? This is not something that is, uh, that people often want to talk about, but this is exactly what happened. Um, and so it, it kind of throws a wrench into the idea that, well, I mean, this is all just exploitative and that, you know, blacks were just victims of these things. We also know that Africans dominated and controlled the entire international slave trade from the Western kingdoms, Western African kingdoms. They set the prices. They acquired the, the slaves. They did everything, right? So slavery, this is what the Thornton book on, uh, on uh, Af the African slave trade makes very clear, that this was an African institution. It wasn't a European institution. Europeans, of course, would benefit from it in acquiring slaves uh, for international sale. Of course, that ended in 1808 in the United States, but they would acquire slaves that way. But the fact is, the people that were making the most money on it were uh, were Africans themselves. And the people that were exploiting the most people were Africans themselves. And so we, we forget this, right? I mean, this is something that's not often discussed because, again, it throws a wrench in the entire simplistic narrative of a of a black versus white institution of slavery, it becomes much more complex. And that's a needed thing, right? Because I think if you have that understanding, there is a reconciliation of this. And plus, nobody in America today owns slaves. Nobody in America today has been part of the institution. It's long gone and thankfully buried. But when we have to, uh, when, when people are targeted and said, this is your fault, whose fault, right? Uh, if you had uh, if you had Irish relatives and those people were brought over here as indentured servants, do they get some type of reparations? If we're going to talk about that, I mean, so all of these things need to be brought up, but nobody really wants to do it because again, you can't fit the three by five 
you know, the, the three by five acceptable index card of opinion, right? You can't do that. It's, it has to be beyond that. And that would be too complex for most of the simpletons out there to understand, particularly on the left or even on the neoconservative right. That's also a problem. So we had these two very good pieces. We also ran a piece on uh, Wednesday on moonshine, right? This is another part of Southern history and Southern culture and the Southern tradition that's, uh, you know, it's an interesting part of it. I, there was uh, When we had Ben Jones out uh, years ago to do a speech at one of our conferences, he gave he gave the uh, the, the he, a rendition of the very famous uh, senator who stood up or a politician who, politician who stood up and talked about uh, whiskey, right? The whiskey speech, and uh, he did it so well. And we have that on YouTube if you want to go out and check that out. But the whiskey speech, but you know, this has been a big part of the South and liquor, and of course. When you get into the hills, you get into the Ozarks and you get to the Appalachian Mountains and you get into that area, whether it's Kentucky or Virginia or, uh, again, Arkansas. When you get into these areas, when you've got mountain people, they grow a lot of, uh, they, they grow, they, they produce a lot of moonshine and it's untaxed liquor. And so uh, this, uh, the picture that we used on the website for this, uh, Travis Holt actually took himself and this was on, this is on his farm. And I loved it. I said, did you take that picture? He said, yep, it's on my fence post. That's my view looking out towards the mountains. It's a beautiful picture. And he's got a jar of moonshine sitting there. Well, uh, moonshine, that untaxed liquor, was a big business for Southerners. And it produced so much of uh, Southern you know, culture in some ways. For example, uh, we wouldn't have NASCAR without moonshine. These, these guys produced fast cars and they were moonshine runners and they had to avoid the tax agents. This is what they're doing. And so then then disputes would break out. Well, who had the fastest moonshine runner? And these guys would race around the track. They would have a dirt track and they would race around. And that created NASCAR. In fact, some of your earliest NASCAR drivers were moonshine runners. So it was a big business for people. And of course, you know, you had to uh, had to hide your still and you had to figure out ways around the law. And uh, particularly during Prohibition, when this became such an such a an important part of uh, people making a career for themselves, you know, there's a image in this area where I live of Hugo Black, who later became a Supreme Court justice, one of the most notorious Supreme Court justices out there. But Hugo Black is busting up some barrels of moonshine, and this is where he made a name for himself. You know, breaking up illegal whiskey distilleries and things like that. This was this was a way that people could establish themselves in a career for the federal government as a G man going out there and busting up these moonshine rings. And so uh, it, it became a badge of honor in the South to avoid the moonshine runners and produce this liquor. And of course, you made money right, for your family. If you couldn't make it on the scant living you could have, you scraping by on the agriculture in your, on your farm, you could, you could produce a little moonshine. We have to understand, you know, people like George Washington. Uh, George Washington was the largest distiller of liquor in the United States at one point. He still has, there's still a distillery on Mount Vernon. And they still make a rye that uh, is very, it's clear. Um, it's, a, it's interesting. You go buy George Washington's rye, right? So if you go to Mount Vernon, you can go do that. Um, this is, a, again, a, an important part of the South, the Whiskey Rebellion. Now, it's often talked about Pennsylvania was the, was the epicenter of the Whiskey Rebellion. But what's left out of that is you had farmers up and down the frontier, not just in Pennsylvania, but also in Virginia and North Carolina. These people were also resisting the tax. So Pennsylvania took the most heat, but you had it in other parts of, of the United States as well, particularly in the South. It was always in the mountains because these people had to make revenue somehow. And so 
This is how they did it, making moonshine. There's a, a, a country artist named Brent Cobb, um, and uh, he's, uh, he's from uh, middle Georgia, and he wrote a really great song on this. It's Down in the Gully. If you just want to hear a good song about moonshine, uh, and, and uh, it's just so good. Brent Cobb, Down in the Gully, just a great song about moonshine. So this piece by, uh, by Travis Holt, he's always a great writer, and we like having a storytelling, too, with Travis Holt. It's fun to have that, um, and so we enjoy that. And Brandon Meeks and others were trying to produce you know, more of this kind of uh, literary stuff, and, and he talks about how this was a, a pro and a con for the South and how it could produce very negative things, which, of course, you know, alcoholism and other things are a negative byproduct of these kind of uh, things, and violence, and, uh, but also it made people money. And uh, that's something that you can't overlook when people are just scraping by. Now, on Thursday, we ran a piece by, uh, by uh, Earl J. Starbuck, and um, it's on language. And the thing I like about this piece is, first of all, he talks about rearing, how important rearing is with language. You know, we forget uh, that Southerners were a well-educated group of people. Now, they're often portrayed as ignorant you know, backwoods hicks who don't know anything. And uh, Southern education has suffered at times. But when you look at the well-educated South, they were better educated. There were more college graduates in the South than anywhere else in the United States in the antebellum period. Southerners, particularly the upper class, ensured that their children were educated, including women. Uh, women were going to, you know, finishing schools and other, they, they, were, be, they were getting educated. Uh, and I... I always point back to Augusta Jane Evans Wilson. You know, Augusta Jane Evans Wilson from Alabama wrote the book Saint Elmo in 1866, and there's others, right? I mean, she's. I'm just using her as a conspicuous example. Uh, wrote the book uh, Saint Elmo in 1866, and if you ever tried to read it, you better have a dictionary next to you. Uh, she is well educated, not just in terms of the craft of literature, but also history. And the book about, of course, is about a it's a, it's a love interest, but the main character, Edna Earle, uh, is a well-educated woman, who, and she makes a lot of political statements in her books, but this was a real anti-feminist book. I mean, if you, if you go out and read it, you know, feminists would hate it. Uh, but um, it's, it centers on a plantation in Columbus, Georgia. The name of the plantation was El Dorado. Now it's called St. Emma. The house still sits there. It's uh, downtown Columbus. Um, but... You, when you read it, you can you can drive by the house and think, oh yeah, I can see where she's talking about this and this. And of course, um, some some pretty prominent people had stayed at El Dorado uh, or St. Elmo over the years, including uh, I think Millard Fillmore actually stayed there at one point. Uh, but it was owned by some very prominent people in the South. And um, but here she writes about this story. And of course, uh, later on, um, she uh, I, I believe if my memory serves me correctly. It's been years since I read the book, but. The character Ed Earl moves to a city, and then she, of course, is um, she fights off several suitors, and she has in her her main interest is a man that uh, is a scoundrel, but she works to to uh, get him, uh, soften him up, so to speak. Right? He he comes around to Christianity, and she uh, eventually gets him to renounce his very uh, very bad ways. So this is an interesting book, but the fact that she was so well educated is something that people miss. She's a product of the South. That wasn't supposed to happen. Women weren't supposed to be educated like this, but you had it in the South. You had 
Uh, Octavia Walton Levert, who was uh, from Mobile, very, uh, very important uh, Southern figure, woman. And, uh, you know, was, uh, Levert was, was good friends with, uh, with Washington Irving, for example, as a young girl. I say good friends. She knew Washington Irving, and Washington Irving knew her father, and, and uh, they, were, they were friends. And, of course, so uh, Irving took a, took a liking to Levert. She, uh, her name was Octavia Walton at that point, and, and uh, you know, thought she was a bright young lady. And, and um, you know, so you have, of course, Washington Irving loved the South. His, his, plant, his, uh, his home there in New York, Sunnyside, was modeled after a Southern plantation. So uh, you can't get around how important the South was to literary figures across the United States. And, and this is just, again, scratching the surface. There were so many important people, women, who were doing some extraordinary things in the South because they were educated. And so when you look at language and the destruction of language, and that's what this piece is about with, with uh, Earl, Earl Starbuck, you look at that destruction of language, and he talks about how, how this affects the way we think about society. We're, we're battling over pronouns and what pronoun to use here and there and, and all of these type of things. But one thing that he, he mentions is that we've, some of these things have been subtly done and then and gradually over time, and it's changed the way we've thought about people and history. And um, I love it for that. I mean, this is why we, we ran the piece, because it has an interesting perspective, very philosophical perspective on this modern culture war and what the changing of language actually will do. And one thing that often keeps a people together is language. If you don't have that commonality in language and colloquialisms and these kind of things and, and, how, and, and how you use language, you're going to lose part of your culture, um, it, you, and, and accents even, right? Um, accents are important. Uh, you you look at um, at a, at you go back just fifty years and how different the accents are in the South and in the United States than they are today. There used to be a symphony of accents. I I, I mentioned this in a piece I wrote for the Institute, uh, gave as a presentation years ago, but. There used to be a, a you go and listen to Congress and you had all these diverse accents. You just don't have it as much anymore. Um, you don't even see it coming out of New England, uh, and they've been able to hang on to whatever culture they want to hang on to. But you don't have it as much anymore. Um, you have uh, a, a vanilla American accent now, and that's that's been created because of the media and because of the 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 idea that we need to have a Midwest accent. I, I tell the story all the time. I had a great teacher. Uh, English teacher when I was in middle school or junior high school when I went there. Junior high school. She's from Alabama, but she used to talk about how she had, you couldn't tell it. Her accent didn't sound anything like it because she thought that if she kept that accent, she would be considered to be stupid. And uh, this woman was not stupid at all. And um, that was her perspective on it. Well, if I keep this accent, people are going to think I'm stupid. And I, uh, she was married to a minister and they had to move around a lot. And she didn't want anybody to, to uh, pigeonhole her into being to being uh, not very intelligent because she had an Alabama or Southern accent. It was um, something she tried very hard to get rid of. And um, it's it's indicative of where we are in society. And so Jake Starbuck talking about this, uh, you know, in this in this piece um, is fantastic. And, and what language actually means and the importance of language. And then, of course, we wrapped up the week with a great piece by Clyde Wilson, on Randolph Shotwell, and most people don't know who Randolph Shotwell is. Um, of course, Clyde Wilson has his Shotwell Press, but what he brings up here is the, in this very short piece, and 
Um, I, I want to read this one because it, it does, and we got a few minutes left. It won't take um, long for me to read it, but he says, We live in a regime with an industrial output of lies about Southern history, so we should let our forebears speak for themselves whenever we can. I have been reporting on little-known Southern books, and here is another. Randolph Shotwell in the 1880s put together some materials for an account of his extraordinary life, using his diaries, letters, and other papers and recollections. These materials were published in 1929 by the North Carolina Historical Commission as the Shotwell Papers. When the war broke out, Shotwell was a 17-year-old student at an academy in Pennsylvania. The Yankee preacher who had been entrusted with his money by his North Carolina family refused to let young Shotwell have it. He set off on foot to return to Dixie with almost no money and inadequate clothes and shoes. People traveling south without permission were being arrested and sometimes murdered by mobs. After much vividly described hardship, he reached the heavily patrolled north bank of the Potomac. After several tries, he finally was able to get across the river under fire. Shotwell had vowed to join the first Confederate unit that he met. It turned out to be the 8th Virginia, which meant that he would eventually become part of Pickett's division. Shotwell wrote well. If he had not belonged to a society that was destroyed, he might have become a significant writer, but his life's work is mostly journalism and private observation. He was extremely literate and well-read. He had strong opinions. While serving as a soldier, he was... He is brutally frank about the hardships of Confederate soldiers and the shortcomings of Confederate policy and administration. The same approach to Republican atrocities during Reconstruction would land him in prison. During the famous charge at Gettysburg, Shotwell was cited for having spontaneously formed men into a flanking formation as they withdrew down the ridge. He became an officer. During the Wilderness Campaign in 1864, he was captured while scouting inside Union lines. He spent the rest of the war on the pits of hunger, disease, and exposure that were prison camps for Confederates. Despite many inducements, he refused to take the oath to the U.S. government and was late in being released. The most interesting part of Shotwell's career is Reconstruction. Returning home, he found a, on a shoestring, he founded on a shoestring a newspaper in Rutherford, in, in uh, Rutherfordton, in western North Carolina. For most of the rest of his life, like so many Southerners, he eked out a bare existence. In his case, with unprofitable newspapers, Shotwell had a distinctive biting style recognized immediately by readers. He frankly exposed and condemned the atrocities committed against law and order and the conservative population by the Reconstruction Republicans. His target was white Republicans, not the freedmen. He also called to account leaders on his own side for what he considered their wrong moves. In 1861, the Republicans passed a Ku Klux bill while the press promoted an exaggerated picture of violent rebelliousness in the South. In preparation for Grant's re-election campaign, this law was used in an event of Reconstruction that has seldom been noticed to remove conservative community leaders. Shotwell, with many others, was arrested in the night, not even with a change of clothes, and taken in chains to a court 200 miles from home, depriving him of counsel, family, and friendly witnesses. The same happened to people all over the South, more than 100, more than 100 from North Carolina alone. On perjured and hearsay testimony from North Carolina scalawags and carpetbaggers, in a kangaroo trial backed by soldiers, he was sentenced to six years hard labor among the criminals at a prison in Albany, New York. There was also a fine of $5,000. If he had even a fraction of that money, he could easily have bribed his way out with, with corrupt, the corrupt officials. Then, while in prison, he was repeatedly urged to secure freedom by giving evidence against others, which he refused. The Republican policy worked. While Grant lost the northern white vote to anti-war Horatio Seymour, he won by the electoral votes of the southern states where the army controlled elections and the black vote was cynically marshaled for the Republicans. Shotwell did not serve the entire six years and was finally pardoned. Reconstruction was gradually loosened in northern opinion. A number of northern officers whom he had done kindest while they were prisoners rallied to his defense. 
He won admiration for his humane management of the prison hospital, equally kind to criminals and political prisoners, blacks and whites. He got no support in prison from his mother's Yankee kinfolk, who demanded that he repent of his sins, having been turned into a criminal by being raised in the South. He returned home to a sparse existence. In 1884, his fellow ex-Confederate Governor Scales appointed him state librarian, which would have eased his poverty, but he died at the age of 40 before taking the post, his early death no doubt the product of the hardships of prison. His story is one of only, is one of only thousands who sacrificed greatly and honorably in defense of the South. So this is a nice little, again, you get a book, the Shotwell Papers, should go out and get that, but also a nice little story of what the war did to somebody of prominence in the South. And anytime we can have uh, you know Clyde Wilson recounting these kind of stories, it's great for the website and great for the Institute. So he's going to do more of them, he said, and he'll, uh, he'll be uh, sending more our way. So we really appreciate that. And uh, we appreciate you. We appreciate you listening to this podcast and supporting and contributing to the Institute and, and uh, sharing around what we do with other people because this is how we continue to grow our audience and expand our mission. So if you do like it, again, please consider a financial contribution. Uh, also, you can do things free of charge. You can buy, a, buy at Amazon using our Smile account, or uh, you're going to buy anyways, or uh, you know, um, click on, uh, you just share stuff around on social media. It's free of charge to do that, and it's more people interested in what we're doing. Uh, all, that, all those things help. Uh, in, in one way or another. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week in review. I'll see you next time. Until then, good day. Mm-hmm.